to another episode of the Snap No Tab podcast. I'm Tony Cicchini, along with, we'll get to who he is in a minute. It's an Easter Sunday weekend. We're filming this Sunday morning. I don't know if it'll get uploaded Sunday or if it won't be until the next day, but happy Easter, everybody. And before I mention my co-host, um, what's happening now, and it's coincidental that it's Easter Sunday, you know that they have those bunny eggs, you know, find the Easter eggs and all of that. Because of the influence that our co-host Joe Cardinal has on the world. This is the last year they're going to be doing that because now it's going to be finding Cardinal eggs. I mean, this is how this guy has taken over the world, man. Um, His popularity is unmatched. Uh, And so, yeah, from that, this will be the last year that they will be doing uh, Easter egg hunts. It's going to be Cardinal eggs um, from now on. And I'm segueing right into the one and only, the greatest human being that ever lived, Mr. Joe Cardinal. Hey, Tony, how are you? Happy Easter, buddy. Happy Easter to you. Yeah, and, and don't forget, your home state, Ohio, excuse me. Yeah, watch <laughs> um, what you say. <laughs> um, is What's your state bird? The Cardinal. Exactly. Same yeah. here in Illinois. It's almost, it's you know, it, it, it's we're taking it by storm. People yeah. love Cardinals. What can I say? Yeah, especially in St. Louis. That's true, yeah. Yeah. It's very hard. I'd always want to like buy Cardinal, you know, paraphernalia like that, but then it's it's the St. Louis Cardinal. So it's kind of a, yeah. a rock and a hard place for me being a Chicagoan. You can't can't wear any of that. So Well, too bad you weren't Catholic, you know, because then then you'd have your chosen life profession, you know, become a priest, try to work your way up to Cardinal. Yeah, and Cardinal way- Cardinal. I don't think it's ever been done. You know. Yeah, but- actually uh my uh so for a little while my kids went to um uh Catholic school, like preschool. And um, uh, so I think I can't remember, it was on Irving Park, not too far from Western, a big Catholic church. But one time, uh, my wife called the main office. And apparently, we're speculating that my name came up, Joseph Cardinal, like the in the caller ID, but all yeah. of a sudden, she said they were very freak. Like she said, the tone of voice changed with them. They're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, hello." Like they're just very panicked and and, and sure. nervous. And 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 then she realized, yeah, that eventually they had a laugh about it. That they thought, yeah, yeah, because in Chicago, the the uh, cardinal for a while was uh, Joseph Cardinal Bernadine. Yep. So um, so that when when Cardinal Joseph popped up on their caller ID, it, it you know <laughs> it gave that's a good classic. Time. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you remember about, well, before the pandemic, when we were doing a seminar and then my friend, one of my students, Tony Pope was there, you were there. And it was interesting because we had a Pope and a Cardinal working out together. All we needed was a Bishop and a priest, which is, you know, um, but yeah, uh, 
I mean, that's kind of interesting to talk about it uh, today of all days, you know, being Easter Sunday and being a uh, the holiest of holy days uh, uh, for p- pretty much, I would assume, a- every Christian denomination. I, I don't I don't know about other Christian denominations that much, but um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, happy Easter, everybody. Uh, and I know that Vince was, you know, Vince called me, Vince Costa, you know, my boxing video guy, one of my uh, trainers or students that I trained, and he's going to be on uh, the podcast coming up shortly, I hope. He's going to come here and pay a visit, he says, and he's going to sit on the couch. We'll set up a microphone and do our thing. But uh, yeah, he called to wish me a happy Easter, and then he was off <clears throat> on, uh, to the uh, going to church. So um, nice. So what's up, Joe? Well, not much. I actually had a story, an interesting uh, kind of martial arts related story, and I was going to uh, run it by you to see like your perspective on it. So this is an uh, acquaintance of mine, training partner. Um, they were on the L train and I don't, this wasn't something that happened recently, but this was just, they were re- relaying a story where they saw an altercation occurring and they said a guy got, got up unrelated to the altercation, an older Asian gentleman got up and basically gave a loud shout uh, and it was so loud. Basically what he was doing, what this guy believes he was doing was like a Kiai, one of those like martial arts shouts. And it basically was so startling. It like stopped the entire thing from going down that like, basically it, it, I wouldn't say deescalated, but it halted the thing in its tracks. Like it ended the confrontation. So it was an interesting story to me. Um, and so it kind of was just as a segue into the general concept of a ki or like a martial yell. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that or, you know, its application, its validity, uh, any cautionary things? What, what do you think about that, basically? Well, I do the ki pretty much every time I look at my bank account. Um, <laughs> no, you know, who's to write it off? Uh Anything can happen in a well. Are you asking me about for a street fight or just the principles of a kiai? Because that's excelling the you know that's to help generate uh, power. Uh, you know, because you do that in um, well, I know in boxing, you know, you you're taught to breathe out, you know, kind of shit. So it's 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 may not may not be as drastic as a audible kiai, um, but yeah, I mean that's. That's certainly not limited to martial arts. I, I, I think they probably popularized it, but um, not that I, I follow tennis a lot, but there was some tennis player. I don't even remember. I think it was a female. I, I could be wrong. Every time she'd hit, she'd like, ah, 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 you know, like that. That is a key. That's a form of key. So um, it, it, yeah, it's not limited to martial arts. Now, as far as what do I think in a fight? Hey man, it worked in this scenario, in, in this street altercation, it it stopped it. My thing with people, I tell everybody is, all right, I'll use the term gimmick, although it's not, I don't mean it derogatory, but just hear me out. So a gimmick like that, okay, to shout or to whatever. If that's all you got, you you, you know, that's may may not be sufficient. So I don't, I mean, use the the the, the safest or the easiest thing first, I guess, which in that case would be that. But if it would have escalated if if the bad guy would have turned on the asian guy now what okay um so you always have to have more than one uh thing to rely on but hey it certainly worked in in that scenario and that's why you have to put that in your memory bank and 
and and know it. You know, know that uh, I, I I I might be able to rely on this sometime. You know. Yeah, it's just interesting because, like you said, there's definitely the breathing out or just breath in general yeah. for like any athletic activity. Like you said, like if you're lifting weights, you're breathing out, or like if you're hitting a tennis ball, like you said, that adds to your power. I'm thinking more of like the psychological aspect of it. Um, like obviously, you'd to you know, first thing came to my mind is if you're going to have your mouth open, you want to be at an out of striking distance because yeah. you know if you happen to be yelling at the moment you know, you just time it poorly and you catch a shot, there there goes your jaw, you're biting your tongue off or something like that. But if you're at a range, I mean, I guess for me, yeah, I often wondered, you know, like, it definitely seems like an interesting tactic and it may even like be trained, but like, you know, even like when someone initially, because you'll see that with guys who get in, who are untrained, will get into a fight and they'll start at a distance you know, just like dogs barking, they're starting to yell, they're starting to curse at each other. There's like a psychological, almost like you're trying to break someone psychologically first before the physical altercation occurs. Well, I, you know, I used to go, I used to have a friend um, and he had told me, he was a little guy, he was a gymnast. I mean, not like a champion or anything, but he did it in grade school, I think in high school. He lived out here, yeah, but he, before I knew him, back in the 80s, he was living in New York, okay? I, and I don't remember where now, but pretty rough section, apparently. And by no means was, was McNabb a, a fighter, okay, at all. But he had said that he was walking home, and two guys jumped him, or tried to jump him. And he immediately went into a martial arts, an exaggerated martial arts stance, like, yeah, you know, like, whatever, something <laughs> out of a movie, all right? And that did the trick. They took off, right? Because they figured, oh, we're going up against, you know, this cat's kung fu over here, you know. And it worked. Now, <laughs> if they had a fight, McNabb, they'd have killed him, right? But he did that. So I think, and, and there's no way of knowing this with anybody, but, you know, generally speaking, people want the path of least resistance. Muggers, robbers, you know, whatever. Um, they're not looking to get in a, in a death match. No, generally speaking, everything, everything I say, I have to, it's generally speaking, right? Um, I mean, it's rare that somebody's going to, a bad, a mugger is going to go out there and say, you know, I'm going to look for the toughest guy to see how, how good I really am. You know, you know, they don't think about that. Um, but they, because you I may mean, look like a badass, that, that doesn't mean that you're going to get away with it either, because, you know, um, it's a different psychological mindset for the, the criminal mindset and something we don't want to get into today. But, yeah, if it works, it works. But as my belief was always, you still have to have backup. You you have to be able to back it up. You know, you have to be able to fight. Um, I can tell you that I've, growing up in that scenario with, with violence and everything, people who have screamed and begged and yelled for help, and all, the vast majority of times it did not, it did not help them, okay? Um, the, the encounter was, was still going on. I think it helps when you get these people who are, I think it may help a little more in a scenario where this isn't a quote unquote bad guy. This is just somebody who got uh, triggered and now has to act up to maybe save face or whatever it is. And sometimes those people are actually looking for someone to bail them out, right? I mean, they're the antagonist, but they kind of want to be a peacock, right? And and they're hoping that somebody will step in or do something that they can back down without losing face. 
You see that I've seen that a lot. Okay. Uh, so I don't know what happened on the train here or wherever they were at. Uh, um, but whatever worked, whatever, whatever it was, the, the Asian guy worked. That's well, a good yeah. And maybe in some ways it's, a, it's, that's kind of maybe an extreme example where it literally stopped the confrontation. Um, and I wouldn't want to make that assumption. It's kind of like the idea of like, assuming you're going to have a one punch knockout, that's a yeah. bad idea, you know, like, <clears throat> whatever it is, you got to assume that the person's going to keep coming. Um, and so I guess to, to refine my question more is, I mean, yeah, it could end things right there, just like the, the first punch could end things or, or whatever have you. But, you know, do you, you would think something like that is, is generally advisable or something to try and work on. So are there scenarios where you're like, like maybe just the first shot, like I can't even get to this guy yet, but it's, I know it's going down or this is, and I want to intimidate him. You know, like, is there a psychological, like I could amp the guy up too. You know, the other thing is, yep. so like in, again, we're speaking in general generalities because you, you never know what could trigger a person. Um, you know, so again, it's hard to make one specific recommendation, but do you, do you think there's some validity as a point, you know, because I've seen it too. Yeah. Like guys start shouting, like, is that, a, a, you know, whether it's shouting or cursing or just like having like a war cry kind of a thing. Um, is that something like any of your coaches ever broached? Like Rod, I never talk about that as a psychological tactic, or have you seen it in other contexts? Not, not that, not that I can recall, but, uh, there's it you really have to learn how to assess people that's the thing okay um that's something that's not uh generally trained taught you know because especially nowadays where everything is sports oriented they don't you don't really get into the how to read people you don't you don't need to um but sometimes just being really cool like almost quiet right can really like scared scare somebody because they just don't know what's up with you um so the wild crazy guy um yeah that that's worked in certain scenarios too it's just knowing you you have to learn how to read the the antagonist here the best you can remember now odds are you don't know this person okay if you know the person it's a completely different thing you then you should be able to know them well enough to either you know to defuse it somehow but again, I use anything that I would use and have used like that. It, it's just a means to an end. If that stops it, fine. But I know that I'm capable of ending it. You always just want to try to find the, the path of release resistance. What's the easiest way? So maybe it's yelling. Maybe it's, you know, your, your attitude. It, it all depends. Here's the other thing to think about. I, at least in my opinion, how involved are you in this scenario? Are you amped up too? Did this person just start on you like pushing buttons to where, you know, you're not in control of your emotions, no matter what path you decide to take, be it the screaming guy or the quiet guy or something in between, um, you have to voluntarily make that decision. Don't let the opponent, the antagonist uh, trigger you. So be in control. I've said this a million times. The last thing you want to do is fight not only your antagonist, but yourself as well. Have yourself under control. Control your emotions. And even if it's looking like you're screaming like a maniac, you might be acting. 
All right, as long as you're in control of it. Once you're not in control and you are primitively acting out, you're, he's controlling you. And you never want that. You know, I talk about control, 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 control. And I've said it a thousand times, if not more. You can't control your opponent until you can control yourself. And you have to control yourself. And we don't always do that. None of us, okay? Not a human being that's ever lived has always been in 100% control of themselves. We we all do things that, you know, we shouldn't or, you know, it's just, you know, there are times when it's okay to do it. You know, it, no harm, no foul. But there are other times where your life's on the line here. So learn to control it. So I, I, I hate, I mean, I'm, it's a great question, Joe. And I, I just get scared with the internet and with people like, they take what you say and then they try to apply that to every situation. Even though we make disclaimers, they still just, you know, because that's just the way that pe some people are. <clears throat> Nothing is 100%, but the soundest advice is make sure you can fight. Make sure you know that, <clears throat> excuse me, you can take care of this situation um, no matter what path it goes down. That's the biggest, that's the biggest thing I can tell you. Yeah, the other advantage I think about, and you're absolutely right, there is no, mm. you know, magic bullet per se. Even having a gun, you know, is not a guarantee in any nope. circumstance. So you can't, and, you know, we talk a lot about this about with like, you know, groin strikes and attacking the eyes. I mean, yes, very valid, you know, dangerous techniques, but if that's all you've got and you can't get to them or for whatever reason it fails, you know, you, you just, you, you can't only have one tool or tactic in your, in your, you know, you're just, you're, you're risking, you're, you're taking a, a huge risk at that. And why do it? Um, just relying on one thing. So, I mean, that's kind of a general caveat, regardless of physical or psychological technique um, or weapon. But I was thinking too, because like psychologically, I'm wondering, see, I think for like for yourself and my assessment of you as a fighter is, and I may be wrong, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you really naturally can uh, um, access from your growing up an aggressive posture. Like it doesn't take much. That temper is there and you get in the right mindset. You know, you're going to get this killer mindset in the fight. And I think that that, I think we both agree that you, if as long as you're in control, you know, you're not, you don't act out when you shouldn't, that can be a, pow a powerful tool and probably is the right mindset to be in when when you're in danger, like you, you flip, but other people have to deal with like, maybe their instinct, their initial reaction or reflex is fear, you know, it's fight or flight. And, you know, a lot of that's, who knows where that comes from, you know, how you, how you grew up, whatever your genetics, but like, I wonder if the key or the, like the kind of war cry, like, you know, like once you know, like, okay, this shit's going down or I'm in danger, it's also for yourself. So like it, possibly can intimidate or cause hesitation even if it's momentary you know it's like that first initial psych out um although it can <clears throat> telegraph too I'm, I'm just sorry i'm just thinking out loud about this um but also it kind of you need to amp yourself up uh, you know like you might be the type of person where when something <clears throat> bad is going down you need to be able to get into the right mindset for like okay this is i need to be aggressive i need to be dangerous here yeah, and for everybody, it could be different, you know, just like music. Some Certain people want to listen to heavy metal. That that calms them down or gets them in the good mood. Somebody else, it might be classical music or jazz or, you know, whatever, country, something. So, yeah, there's no universal uh, 
answer, right? But yeah, you you hit on the amped up thing or or, or whatever term we can use there, you know, get you in the involved appropriately. And for some that might be the screams. I know that um like weightlifting and stuff, you know, powerlifting and shit. I've seen, you know, when I was involved in that world for a while, you know, oh guys, some of them will get and then they're then they'll do their lift, right? Others just quietly, nonchalantly um do the lift. You know, uh I was one of those quieter types. Kevin was a quieter type. We just you know, we'll do our lift. Um but I've seen some damn strong men, you know, get you know, all psyched up in it. Um so it it yeah, it, it, it it's an individual thing. And the, the the key is um finding what what works for you. Don't necessarily parrot or mimic someone else. Um find something that works for you that you believe in. Uh yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those deals, man. Like you are more a, a laid back, quiet guy. You're never, ever going to have my personality, which, which is good for you, right? You don't want to have that. I many times wish I had a personality like you, which is more laid back and cool, calm and collected, right? Whereas I'm aggressive just because of life. It'll never end. I'm almost 60 years old. It's never, it's never going to change. So. What would work for you wouldn't work for me and vice versa. So find, you got to find what works. That's all I can say. Do you think in like training scenarios and coaching, because some of the stuff you have to discover about yourself, um, there's val- validity for coaches using verbal tactics on their students? Absolutely. I made a video years and years and years ago for somebody, because, you know, and it, it, they wanted a street fighting video for it. And we were profane. We were screaming, you know, on a video that I mailed to him. And he was all upset about that. I'm like, what do you want? You wanted a street scenario thing. You think somebody's going to be polite to you in a violent life and death encounter? No. Um, I think. Now, this is just me and probably the majority of, of viewers and listeners will disagree, but. I don't think training should always be fun. You know, the camaraderie, the hey, pal, you know, this, there's times and places for that. But, you know, you've got to get amped up. You got to get nervous. You got to get uh, your adrenaline going. And teachers, you know, sometimes, and I know that we've talked about this, you've, you've got to find what, what triggers the person, right? Let's say he's real short and he's sensitive about that. You know, there's play time and places where you got to just start digging at them, you know, just it, calling them names and picking on them like that. It's a gamble because you might lose a student more than likely. But the point is, you've got to get that person, he or she, um, to see how they're going to react when mentally now you've taken them out of their comfort zone because – that's what a lot of training I've seen. It's all about comfort zones, okay? And and pretty much staying in the comfort zone. Let's make this gym a comfort zone gym. And again, if, if, if that's fine if that's the gym thing, but your 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 uh but street fighting or violent encounter things, that's the last thing you want, okay? You don't need a gym where you're always in your comfort zone or not being pushed yeah, you know, out of the parameters in my opinion, okay? But again, my opinion is based on how I learned, you know, everything about my life and, and growing up was never being in your comfort zone ever. So I'm looking at it from a totally different angle, but yeah, I, I kind of get, 
when, when they're showing antiseptic techniques or antiseptic street scenarios, I, I just say, okay, your heart's in the right place, but you don't have the experience to know really like how it's going to go down. Like, that's just my opinion. That's how I look at it. Yeah, there is something just to being, you can be physically ready, you can be fit and have techniques and still not have the right mindset or be psychologically prepared. Um, and, you know, and this is probably like an area lacking in my area of training too. It just, cause it, like you said, it doesn't exist a lot in, in, in traditional gyms or wherever you might go out. It, it's, I don't think it gets prioritized like it should. I mean, that's one thing I think the military gets right. I mean, at least that they, you know, I don't know what's going on now, but like, everything I've ever seen about boot camps is they are psychologically coming after these guys. They're in their face. They're yelling at them. They're making it uncomfortable for them. Um, so they, they can, you know, after weeks of having that done to them, because I obviously a big part of combat is psychological trauma and, you know, and, and being in stress. And so they, they create that from day one, you know, waking them up early, bang, you know, like all kinds of things. Um, to uh yeah just to destabilize them psychologically and um get them comfortable to loud noises i mean even animals freak out you know like with loud noises um it's just it's not in our nature you know uh especially here you know uh in in regular society like you grew up kind of obviously in in a in a very ghetto situation where it's different um and so you're used to kind of it, it wasn't uncommon for you to see altercations and hostility but or hear them even yeah even. And, um, but for here, it's, you know, for most people who it's, it's the rare thing. And so it's, it, it can be unsettling if you're, you know, it comes, it usually comes by surprise and you're not ready for it. You know, if you're not acclimated to it. So yeah, you can, in the boot in the boot camp analogy is, is good to a degree because, but you got to remember you're a captive audience where you're going to go. Right. And most recruits know there's limits, you know, they're not going to get beaten or shot to death. Not at least not on purpose, you know, they're not supposed to. So they kind of have that going for them. But the biggest thing is, um, if you're a DI or drill sergeant in the Army, whatever, um, you know that th that recruit's going to be there tomorrow morning. Martial arts schools don't have that luxury, okay? Mm -hmm. You can push a person to the point where they're not going to show up tomorrow, okay? And there's not a damn thing you can do about it, right? So that is like, the instructor has to keep a business going. You have to have money to pay the bills. Otherwise, there's no school to go to. <clears throat> so they're in a more difficult situation than a DI would be, right? Um, and that's just common sense. And uh, like I said before, the way I was trained would never fly today, okay? Um, so, yeah, it it's – it would – and and the other drawback is boot camp was thirteen weeks, right? So then 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 it's abandoned, in essence. Um, just like I could throw or anybody could throw up weekend boot camp kind of training. Well, you can go, you can do anything for two days or three days. You can you can survive. You can, but it's the long term exposure to this type of training that would be most beneficial to the student. And there again, how do you know that that student's going to come by tomorrow? He may just say, no, I've had enough. And the instructor's long gone. He's out. Of, the instructor's out of luck. The student's long gone. The instructor is going to have to close up shop. So in an ideal situation, 
you would train somebody in, in the most rugged, violence way you could for minimum of one year, preferably a couple of years. And, and that would take a very serious student. Okay. Uh, students, it had to be plural because again, the instructor, you know, we have to make a living somehow. So um, I don't know how many people would be uh, prepared for that. Now, remember, no matter what branch of the military you get, you get into nowadays, you know, because there's no draft, it's a career. So um, not only are the recruits not paying for this training, they're getting paid and they're going to get benefits and they want to get an education and, uh, you know, defend their country and, and, and all of that. Uh, for us, you know, we're asking somebody to pay for all this abuse. And there may be no payoff in the end, especially if they don't want to, I mean, financial payoff for them, if they don't want to open a school themselves or whatever, maybe they're doing it for altruistic reasons. So it, it's damn difficult, if not impossible, you know, to find that. I've never found a, a student that be willing to go through that for an extended period of time and it, and then pay, pay me a substantial fee to do it. Uh, that's tough. Um, yeah, and it makes sense. And that's kind of the, the tricky thing. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit about, in general, about hardcore schools uh, and how do, you, how do you balance that with a school that wants to make money? Because probably 5 or 10% of your students are going to be the hardcore ones who are going to show up all the time, who are going to want to compete, who are going to want to be driven. But that's not enough to to make a living off of. If you're doing this as your source, you know, if you're not just doing this as a side gig or as a, and when, I don't want to say hobby, but like uh, basically, you know, you're doing it something other than your income. But if this is your way of income, you're just going to have to support it. The school, they're just, you just won't get that volume of people um, who have that mindset, who are willing to take that kind of abuse. Um, you know, it's it's not easy. It's not fun. It's hard. Like you said, like we just said, it's hard to get people to pay for something that's unpleasant, let alone having them show up for something that's, you know, not as even even something that's, you know, relatively tame. It's hard to get consistent students. So I think that's for like a, a business gym. That's definitely you know, very hard. And they would have to have almost like a separate program saying, OK, you know, if you want to volunteer for this, but understand that what this is, you know, almost having a tiered program. Uh, Yeah, a tiered program. And again, now you're putting your instructor, I mean, there's only so many hours in the day that the instructor, I mean, most people, let's say they work a nine to five job. So now you have just a very limited window of training hours. You know, let's say from five to 10 at night. So you got five hours a night for the instructor. Let's use his angle. I mean, he's got to teach a regular class probably a child's class. Now, how much time does he have left unless you're training at three o'clock in the morning, right? Um, So, but what I was going to get at is I've heard about and I've read about a lot of the old time karate schools in the seventies, it seems, not sixties. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't exist. I'm not, what I know is the seventies, guys like Frank Ryan and others. I was just talking about Frank Ryan with somebody. um, Hardcore, you know, like rough, and tumble training real rough now people nowadays will scoff at the techniques well they couldn't win in a fight because they'd get taken down or whatever but that's not the point they were conditioned mentally to deal with the hard you know 
heavy heavy knuckle push-ups, whatever it is, you know, and all the rough training, um, you know, which it was a different time. And and I think, I don't, now stop me if we were talking about this on a previous podcast, because I don't remember about how the movies in the 70s and how pe- people in the 70s, my era, it, it was ugly and was a violent time in America. It just was, okay? Maybe not in the rural areas. But in the cities, it was just rough. And all you got to do is watch the movies. Look at the movies in the 70s. Not the, the, don't look at the plot of the movie or the acting of it. Look at the background, the stuff that wasn't part of the movie set, okay? That was just the way it was, the urban life, the filth, the graffiti, you know, all of that shit. Um, it was just a rough and scary time. Worse than now. Okay, and we have a different kind of violence that we're dealing with now. So I think my point was is that people were more receptive in the 70s to dealing with this hardcore violent training. At least I know I was, um, because I knew what it was like out in the real world. Um so there, and again, forget about what these people were learning in the karate schools, whether it was effective, whether it was not, don't, it, that's irrelevant. It was the, for our, our subject matter here, it was the psychological trauma that they put themselves, put themselves through. Um, yeah, I just don't know now if, if, if people would be, you know, of the mindset, you know, you, you read or you hear about people saying the younger generation soft, you know, they're entitled or whatever. And I'm not one to, I can't make a determination on that because my my exposure to the younger generation now is basically zero, right? So I don't know. But if that's true, I'm not saying it is, I don't know. But let's say if it is, then they're not going to put up with this kind of training, period. They're just, it's, it's not going to happen. So um, are we lucky that we went through that rough training? I don't, I don't know. Okay, um, I, I can't. I mean, it's, it's it's it doesn't matter to me if I was lucky or not. It, it it happened, and now I have to accept it. I just feel like I really wish I could have a crew of people, twenty twenty five people that I could just train ruggedly, like, you know, be friends off the mat, go out for pizzas and whatever. But on the mat, you know, in 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 the gym, in the dojo, you you've got to just turn all that off. There's no friends here. Okay. You're not here to make friends and look good. You're here to become a great fighter and learn to defend yourself because your life and the life of your family uh, may depend on it. I want to circle back a little bit to the shouting uh, aspect too and the training of it and kind of tie it in with your musical background. I don't know how from, obviously you were, you know, a drummer and an accordionist, but um, do you know anything about as far as techniques for warming up your voice like if you're going to practice shouting or yelling do you know anything of like vocalists do i only took one vocal lesson um and i if i knew well i'm going through a different kind of throat issue now i'm sucking on a lozenge now um no i mean i'm not the guy to ask for that because i honestly i'm not a vocalist i mean i do sing but i'm not a one lesson i'm not a trained vocalist okay so i'm not the guy to answer that so I would not want to give anybody any information on it. I, I just don't know enough. My opinion wouldn't matter. Okay. Yeah, I've just been curious because it would seem, you know, because I definitely, like in our band practice, I know our our singers lost his voice or heard his voice, you know, and that's not even as aggressive as the kind of 
stuff we're talking about, but it's something to consider at least. I guess, you know, we don't have specific advice, but I would suggest if you're going to look into that, see what, what's involved in that. Cause I do think you can hurt yourself too. Well, vocalists, I mean, I've dated a couple that were like sensational. I mean, not opera, popular music, but they're very protective of their voice, just as like a pianist or a violinist is very protective of their hands. You know, um, us drummers, we didn't give a shit, you know, so <laughs> we're different. You know, it's, um, but uh, yeah, I would, I highly recommend anybody that's listening or watching get quality training from a professional. I mean, don't go on YouTube for this shit. I mean, you can later on maybe, but get a foundation, go to somebody on any, on any of this subject matter, you know, um, and because the problem with all videos, they're not interactive. Okay. Um, you, you know, you just see it and you got to kind of fill in the blanks. Well, if you don't have the ability, the knowledge to fill in the blanks, you might be doing it wrong. That's why my Tri-C program was filling in the blanks. You have a problem. You, I watch it and I can say, okay, here's what you're doing wrong. And that's where you gotta, you have to seek out trained professionals. Uh, there's just no, um, there's no, no substitute. And and the one you go to may not be the right one, you know, for you, it may not be a mesh. So you, you, you try again. Um, I just don't know what, I mean, yeah, it's convenient to go on your on your computer and and watch things, but um, yeah, if you don't know what you're doing, and you're you're going there for an education, it may not be the wise path to go down. So seek out the experts. Hmm. Kind of on another note, we did usually touch on this at the beginning, but we should probably do some of our plugs if people are still tuned in. And oh listening. yeah, we got seminars uh, coming up. Go ahead. Yeah. So next weekend, right? So. Workshops. Yeah, the workshop uh, next Saturday, the 15th, uh, Bender's Martial Arts and Fitness at one thirty. So that's uh, $75. Anybody in the Chicagoland area obviously is welcome to attend. Um, you know, we'll be waiting by the front door to let people in. Um, yeah, I'll be there. Um, well, know, explain why you have to do that, because it's funky getting into Jason's place. Yeah, so his front door, basically, there's like a security code door to ring in to get in. And... Uh, you know, the code normally basically just goes to the other instructor's phones who may or may not be there. So Jason, I'm depending on his schedule, you know, he could be there. So his, uh, the door code, um, you know, is 102 and you can ring that to get to Jason and he can buzz you in. So it's, it's likely he will be there, but just in case as a backup, um, there's a front door, there's ample parking, by the way. So okay, let's get, let me interrupt you because mm-hmm. people may not be getting the visual. This is not a just like a school that you're going to. It's in a converted factory. So there's many different things in there. There's there's a art studio in there. There's, uh, you know, there's different stuff. So it's not like you're driving up to his door. It's in a building. So that's what that's why there's a. uh, Yeah, right. It's not really obvious. I mean, he's got a a neon sign in the window, but it's it it, it is a multi-story multi-use building. So. Um, you know, with the door buzzer on the way in. So uh, anyways, so that's that. And then on Sunday, uh, the following day, so I guess it'll be the 16th from yeah. 10 to noon, um, is at uh, DuPage Krav Maga. So there's a second workshop there. Uh, you can do them back to back. If you can't make one, try and make the other. So we have one That'd for people who are more in the city and some for people who are in the burbs. 
Yeah, now the Sunday one, it's it's in a strip mall. The door, you can just right, walk right in there. Uh, there's no uh, buzzing in and, and all of that jazz. Um, and again, parking lot parking, so you, you don't have to worry about uh, any of that at either location. Um, and I know uh, I know Joe will be at the Saturday. Well, actually, Joe may, might even be at the Sunday one because I'm uh, – so here's the deal. So I'm assuming that Martin is going to be at the Saturday one. Uh, and after the Saturday – thing with Jason Bender at Bender's place where she, Martin's wife is throwing a 50th birthday party. So Joe and I are going to go to the party, which will be later that evening in Chicago somewhere. So I'm just going, so me, I can't drive at night. So instead of me driving all the way back home after the thing and it does it, I'm crashing at Joe's house Saturday night. So, um, cause Joe doesn't live far from the Sunday seminar or workshop, you know, 10 minutes or something like that. So, um, but yeah, so Martin, yeah, I got uh, the uh, I got the sleeping bag set up in the garage for you. So you're <laughs> yeah, right. Give me dog biscuits. Um, <laughs> Mar- Martin just got back late late last night from a trip down south, I think. So I'll, I'm going to train Martin on Zoom this evening, Sunday evening. I don't know when you guys are going to see this or hear this. So I'll get the lowdown on that. But uh, yeah, it'll be a nice little um, weekend, uh, and uh, it'll be my first time in a long long time to not come home at night you know uh it'll be i mean not because of joe it'll just be a weird thing for me i'm always i'm always here you know so um but yeah you know uh i i don't feel like talking about my myself or my training because i could i could throw in the stations of the cross which would be an ample story to tell the fourth yeah we always always love that one yeah, right. Because that's that's how he put me through that, you know, stretching me out in fourteen different ways, and you know, naming the stations of the cross. You know, the, this is the condemnation. You know, uh, you know, this this is the you know all of that. It was maybe for another time. I just don't feel like it. Um, but let's talk about you, Joe. Because I all I we I always bring you up, but I'm sure people are interested in, in knowing more about you. So, what was like? Growing up musically, what are the what were the bands that you listened to? What made you get into playing the bass? Um, you know, how did you cope with your father's passing? All of that stuff, because that stuff happened to you when you were a kid. Uh, well, yeah, and two very different subjects. Um, I guess I'll start with the lighter stuff, the music um, stuff. Uh, you know, growing up, so I think the two biggest things I think musically that had an influence, my uncle. So my uncle lived above us. Um, the one I went to visit recently for a while, he, he basically rented, um, not rented, but yeah, I don't know what the arrangement was, but he lived in our house and, um, you know, he was, you know, a kid of the sixties. So there was some Christmas where, uh, he bought me like a little tape cassette depth and he had recorded, I don't know if it was from his albums or what, but basically all the Beatles albums or most of them on cassette. And so at a very early age, I was indoctrinated um with Beatles music which kind of set my path as far as being a rock fan uh rock and roll fan uh they were kind of ground zero for me um and then the other thing that I think that really kind of turned me on to R&B and I think had a big influence of kids of my age was the um uh Blues Brothers movie actually um you know that 
I forget it was 1980 or 79, somewhere right about there. But it, it was a huge movie at the time, especially because it was very Chicago centric. You know, it was filmed in Chicago. And and so they just had like, you know, all the A-listers, you know, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, uh, James Brown. So, you know, it was kind of that had a major, major impact on my musical tastes of like liking traditional R&B and all those people. Um, and in that era, you know, there was the in Chicago, the rock station was the loop. Um, and, but they had other ones, we had oldies stations, you know, so, you know, I got to listen to like Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the guys who, you know, and, and I just grew up, you know, uh, I loved reading about it and, and following it from there. Now, my dad, it's interesting to tie in with my father, because my father, you probably would have liked talking to him about music. He was a big jazz guy, big jazz. Oh. Yeah. Um, and my mom and him would go to jazz clubs all around the city, all over the city, oh. um, but that's kind of lost to me, you know, like that's, there's a lot of, it's a lot of interesting things when you look back <clears throat> life, you know, how someone that significant is taken out of your life. So, so people don't know my father passed uh, just before my seventh birthday. Um, and that's really, I mean, I'm sure he had an influence on my life through those seven years, but, you know, I, I have very few memories, you know, like, just the just you know fuzzy memories of him and it's just kind of because i think dads are not as much and you know they're out working they're you know so your time with them is limited anyways you know and back then they didn't do as much of the child rearing per se it wasn't you know they definitely weren't changing diapers or doing any of that kind of stuff so um a lot of his influences there was some of it like the vestigial things like um my father also uh was a piano player uh, and I think he picked that up late in life, but he just had a passion for the piano. Uh, we had we had just a small bungalow uh, on the north side of Chicago, but um, uh, he actually in, in our front room area uh, actually had a grand piano. It was a little ridiculous. I mean, he just wow. it took up a huge, but I mean, he had such a passion for it um, that he, you know, he, he sprung for this. Um, I don't remember him ever playing again. It's just gone from my mind. I do remember actually. So um he he had a genetic condition called marfan's disease which is a connective tissue issue the, the strength of your connective tissue uh is affected by that um and ultimately and, and so um a lot of the, a lot of people who have that um one of the things that can happen with them is his aorta rupture so the connective tissues in 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 uh you know his aorta and so i do remember him laying on the piano bench as EMS was coming to get him. Now that didn't kill him, but that was the beginning of the end uh, because, uh, you know, uh, they obviously had to do a lot of surgeries to try and repair that. And um, uh, uh, he actually was flown. He went to, I believe, Houston. It was definitely Texas. I'm almost 100% sure it was Houston uh, to Dr. DeBakey. You may even know that name. Oh, yeah, but, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a world famous, the guy, he, you know, he operated on the Shah of Iran, um, just a lot of famous. My mom, I thought she said that Joe Lewis was in the hospital. I don't know if it was to see Dr. DeBakey, but she remembers seeing him in a hospital bed there. Um, and just, you know, talking about how this, his size and, and his looking at him. Um, but anyways, uh Supposedly the surgery was successful, but he never came out of the anesthesia. So they screwed up the anesthesia somehow. 
he never recovered, never, you know, brain function. Um, and so, but kind of the thing is, so there's all this music, you know, his musical knowledge, his musical interests, you know, they're just things get cut off. That's the way life works, right? If someone's taken out of your life, especially at that age where you really didn't get a chance to interact with him, you know, so that influence uh, was, you know, I, I often wonder where my life would be and what I would be doing uh, if he was still around. Um, but so his influence was there. The only other thing, actually, we mentioned t- tennis earlier in the day is that he was also a big tennis uh, player. And so I, my mom kind of, one of the things that is for his legacy, she tried to put me into things that he was involved in. So I had tennis lessons as a kid. I was, uh, people who know the North side of Chicago, uh, know there's a tennis, uh, this, this, the, the city parks have something called the McFetridge center, which is an ice skating ring and tennis, uh, in California park. And so I, I didn't live too far from there. So I did tennis lessons there as a kid. Um, but uh, that is also not too far. So it's about three miles west of Wrigley Field. And the only reason why I bring that up is that uh, I was much more at a young age interested in baseball. And, my, you know, <laughs> and I always wanted to use a tennis racket because they had a kind of a cool upper deck where the, the parents could watch tennis. But my goal was always to hit the tennis ball up into the upper decks like a home run. You know, so I wasn't too much on the point of tennis. I was kind of miss, missing it a little bit. But uh, it was still that, that actually had a. Um, there was a lot I took away from tennis as far as the way they trained us. There was a lot of um, wind sprints and things that we did, like between the tennis lines and things to get that lateral agi- agility that I still occasionally try to do um, when I have access to a tennis court just for general training. But anyway, so that's kind of the interesting tie in is that, you know, I don't, you know, I don't even know, like if you had a record collection, if my mom got rid of it, I don't remember ever seeing it. Um but yeah, it would have been interesting to see what he was into as far as jazz and things like that. I know my mom was, but she kind of, uh, after he passed, you know, and obviously this is a very religious occasion being Easter, but uh, that made her really kind of lean heavily on her faith and become much more religious. And that had a big impact on me early as well, too. So I think she kind of stepped away from a lot of things, um, you know, like she stopped drinking and smoking and uh, like, I don't think she got it. You know, there was some music that she still listened to. She wasn't, it's was interesting. <laughs> so in some ways she kind of like, um, you know, cut off certain parts of, you know, what you'd call like uh, secular life being religious, but other things she didn't censor at all, which was always funny. Like she just loved movies and films and, and comedians, especially. And so even after she just never censored herself or us from that, like I said, I was a kid I don't know, probably well, how old, uh, eight or nine, whatever. And she took me to see the Blues Brothers because it was a, it was an event. You know, it's like, hey, these guys from Saturday Night Live. It's a Chicago movie. It's rated R. There's all kinds of languages and jokes I didn't get at the time, but she didn't hesitate to take me to that. You know, so it's kind of an interesting, uh, I don't know, duality. Like her, her trying to sort out her interests in art and and culture and her religious faith um, and and how that played out and stuff that influenced me. Um, But ultimately you kind of asked how I got into the base. Totally, totally not in my control. Totally just, uh, you know, uh, external uh, sources. You know, I don't even think I knew the bass guitar existed necessarily. Like I liked rock music, but I didn't really research it. Um, Like I said, so my mother, she forced me into like tennis lessons, which were okay. You know, I still had fun with that, but she also, because of my dad, uh, got me into piano lessons and man, did I hate that. Oh boy. Like I just had nothing. Like, I think like the first week I enjoyed 
kind of making the correlation about like, oh, I can do the things they're showing me. But after a couple of weeks, once it got in the way of me having fun, forget it. I hated it. And, um, you know, I, you know, just yet another wasted opportunity as a kid. <laughs> you know, I was given this opportunity to learn musical instrument. But I think like a lot of kids, when when you're forced, when it's not your passion or interest and you're kind of forced to do it. Um, yeah, it, it can often, you know, and, and obviously some parents have the ability to whip the kids into shape, but, I, you know, just being a single mom, I don't think it was her priority. Uh, but uh, uh, so anyways, my point being about the kind of crashing and burning about the piano lessons is that I just kind of felt music. I was never going to be a musician. Like it was, it was like saying, Hey, are you going to be a rocket scientist or uh, you know, a brain surgeon? It's like, no, that's something like, you know, it's like, trying to under, speak, you know, Mandarin or something. It's just something that's so foreign to me um, that I didn't think it was something I could do. And then um, it was kind of a, like I said, it was, it's, it's kind of a blessing from my friends that um, I have two friends, uh, Reinhardt and uh, Reinhardt Schoenfeld and Mark Movak. So Mark, I work with these guys and they're very musical. Um, but anyways, long and the short of it is Reinhardt was having his 40th birthday party at this restaurant, not too far from Bender's place, actually, on Lincoln Avenue uh, by Bren Maher. Um, and my friend Mark, he's a Baha'i. So there, that's a religious, it's kind of a, you know, um, kind of an offshoot of Islam. Um, and they don't drink, but he's a wild man. He's just crazy, outgoing, super exuberant. So everybody there is eating, drinking, having a good time. But the guy who was out there the most was Mark even though he wasn't drinking, he was just, you know, getting everybody to laugh, being out there, very super personable guy. And so my friend Reinhardt kind of looks like in the middle of stopped him in the middle of the track is like, man, you know what, you would be a great front man for a band. And he's like, we should start a band. You know, this is just kind of like during a mm. kind of ramblings during a, a, you know, a drunken birthday party. Again, Mark was not drinking, but he was acting like he was. And, um, and so they're just like, sure, we're going to do it, you know, because I think, you know, when you when you reach those major milestones, big birthdays, like 40, you're like, holy shit, I'm old, you know, you realize you're not a young man anymore. So I think uh, Reinhardt, who would always, I guess he'd been in a like a band that never really got out of the basement, so to speak, uh, as a kid, just kind of like had that epiphany. He's like, Mark, let's do it. We're going to do a band. I can play guitar. What can you play? And he's like, well, I can play. He plays the cello. He can play guitar. You can do these other things. He's like, all right, we'll figure out what you can do. And then they turned, they literally just turned to me and said, Joe, what do you, what can you play? What are you going to do? And I said, I, I said, I don't play anything. And it's like, all right, you're playing the bass. And that was <laughs> it. That was basically it. They, they basically drafted me into playing the bass. Uh, my friend Reinhardt brought his bass to our first, and it, and it was literally, I think like the the day after, like that was on the weekend. So it was maybe like the Monday or Tuesday after at work. They kind of, we all got together. And so, uh, I think they either came into my cube or they're like, all right, we're going to do this. We're not, we're not bullshitting. Let's get together. Let's have a band. We're going to meet at Mark's place. I'll bring my guitars. I'll bring the bass. Mark had, you know, Mark's kids um, were actually very musical as well too. That's one of the kind of the cool things with Mark and his family is that his, um, um, his family's he's had always had musical instruments around for them. They've had classical training. They've been in rock bands. I mean, they've been musical their whole lives, which is kind of cool to see that he had a passion for music, but was able to instill that in the kids too and cultivate it. You know, unlike my family where it's just kind of got, you know, it's hard to get a kid to be inspired to be a classical pianist, you know, let's say, um, but somehow he was able to make it fun for them. And they, 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 you know, um, two of his three kids are, are, play musical instruments and have been in bands and things like that. And even uh, one of them pursued it 
to a high level in school. Um, but anyways, where was I going with that? So yeah, that basically like we had our first practice and and you were how old? Probably he, he turned 40. So I was probably like 38. Jesus. I always thought you played the guitar, bass guitar since you were a kid. So yeah, this is something. See, I didn't know this. Yeah, no, to- totally. Just it was literally assigned to me at a birthday party and, at, when I was 38. Totally like you're going to do this. And, and, and um, so I was, I was kind of given a second chance at music because it was something I always loved. Like I always bought, you know, back in the day with, you know, CDs or albums, I was always buying a ton and listened to a ton of music um, and loved it, but just thought it was something that was impossible. You know, I just thought it was yeah, like you had, it's like almost like, and there's a lot of parallels with my martial arts training in that, you know, I'd never really, I got probably more serious as I got older. Um, uh, but I always assumed like, if you didn't start at a young age, you were never going to be, you know, a, a functional musician. Like you just couldn't do it. It was just, you know, something that just took, and it I mean, obviously there's degrees of mastery. I'm, I'm literally just a, a bass player in a punk band, which is probably the lowest, <laughs> tier, the lowest tier of musicianship. Um, but it's it, like, yeah, it was a real, uh, these guys gave a real blessing in my life. Um, something I never thought I would, you know, I never would consider, never thought of myself as being a musician or could have been a musician or been a band. You know, when I'd hear about other people in the band, um, you know, there was some jealousy because that's a cool, fun thing to do, you know, go out and play gigs and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I just, so it was really kind of completely outside of my control. It was, it was, like I said, it was given to me. It was almost gifted to me and they just kind of worked it through. We, you know, the first songs we played. Um, and I think this goes back, we were talking about music either last podcast. Yeah. I think it was last podcast. I was going to bring it up because you're talking about like, sometimes you listen to very complex um, jazz. You yeah. Know. Bebop is my thing. Yeah. But there's some stuff where it's like, Hey, I just want to listen to something simple. You know, sometimes a simple tune can be a lot of fun and can be enjoyable. And I forgot to mention that. Like, yeah, some of my favorite, you know, songs are like, it's three chords. That's what you need to know. <laughs> you know, notice yeah. in, in on the bass, that's three notes, you know, just it, it's, it's all about the rhythm and the, the delivery and the lyrics. Um, and yeah, so we started with some simple like Ramon songs and, you know, I mean, I hate to say this, but like, yeah, starting at that level, you can be playing along with them uh, pretty quickly. Like we were pretty successful at getting some of those like early Ramon songs out within a few practices of just like, here, you play, this is how you play. Now I did pick some stuff up from YouTube. There was some basic of like mechanics of how you use your fingers. I mean, that's one of the blessings of YouTube. There's a lot of garbage information out there, but if you are interested in something, you can find all kinds of, you know, you can mine through some of the garbage and find stuff that's helpful. Um, and so I did find some helpful resources to get going. Um, yeah, I mean, there's stuff even now that I wish I had done more then. So I wish I had started at that point playing the regular guitar too. Um, but I was just too intimidated by, you know, like the bass is nice because it has big, you know, it's a lot bigger strings. So it's a lot grosser motor skills, if you will. I mean, obviously the, the high level guys can do crazy stuff with it, but as far as starting, but I think like, a you know, your normal electric guitar is a little bit more finesse, you know, you got the six strings, they're smaller, you're doing chords, but I wish I had started from day one trying to work those things. Uh, I'm pick, trying to pick that up now. Um, it just helps me to be a better bass player. You know, I can kind of look over to see what chords, the, you know, the, the guitarist is playing. If I can recognize them, um, that helps me to kind of follow along. But yeah, it definitely was a late in life thing. And 
you know, our band has put out some shitty records. We're out on Spotify. I mean, I'd, I'm proud of the fact that even if we didn't, you know, we're never going to be popular or anything, at least we're creating stuff. You know, we're enjoying music and we have kind of a community based around it. We do backyard concerts where, you know, uh, we know other bands and they come out and we hang out. And it's just it's been a real, a real joy to have in my life. I played the bass once. We were at a jam session, polka music, the upright bass. They needed a bass player. So I didn't feel like playing the drums set all day long. So I said, all right, let me I'll do the bass. So just give me a minute. So I had to figure out where C was on all strings. And then uh, because it's polka music, they basically play in C, F and B flat, you know, not a big deal. So and it's all chromatics. I mean, granted, I'm terrible. I only did it once. But if I know where C is at, so I'm not lost. Everything is just slide up chromatically, slide down chromatically. I'll figure it out. And it's a boom, 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 boom. That's that's pretty much all the bass lines were. Nothing complex, but it's tough, man. Especially upright bass, you know. Oh, that's yeah, that's a whole different ball game. Oh yeah, because the strings are further away. So yeah, I'm not a um, you know, like my dad could do all that. He was a he was a guitarist, you know. I mean, I didn't know him that well, but yeah, he was a sensational guitarist. He can play bass. But yeah, I mean, I, I give you guys credit, man. Uh, the bass would be not for me. Uh, but there was a guy in Cleveland, Mike, I forgot his last name, an older guy. I played a gig, a couple gigs with him, but he would, you know, he kind of show, he'd spin the bass. You know, he was like my grandfather's age. They grew up together. And he'd slap it, you know, he'd slap the strings on the bass. Uh, I forgot his last name, but um, yeah, it, he was entertaining to watch. You know, I don't, I mean, he just strictly polkas. I never heard him play anything else. Um, yeah, it's interesting though. I always thought you were like you picked up the bass, you know, as as a kid. Um, I've heard your band. I went to one of your weekend parties. Uh, hopefully, I can go again. You know, this year it would be nice if you're throwing it. Um, I'll try to be there. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Music. I knew a lot of great guys. You know, kids that, uh, or not kids, but young. You know young men um i always because i played in different bands uh before i became like what i would call a professional jobbing musician and even then when i became a jobbing musician we would do stuff i was playing with some kids my age different we'd go at nursing homes or we'd get paying gigs you know in you know in but they didn't my most of my playing paying gigs were with old older men you know um uh and 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 in the jazz realm or wedding wedding bands, um, but I played in some rock bands, you know, just for fun. I think I played one out here where they uh, busted my window in my. I had a jeep back then. Um, it's right shortly after I moved to Chicago, but it didn't even have a radio in my jeep. Um, I had to have a cassette. Uh, they took that, you know. <laughs> So it was, um, yeah, and we, the band was like, I mean, I we didn't really even rehearse. I just played some funky, funk style on the drums. I, you know, I'm not a rock drummer, you know, for, per se. But no, I, I didn't know that about you, man. It's interesting. Um, and I bet you, man, with the women with you and probably some guys, they just, I mean, doesn't that cause a problem with the band, your bandmates, because you get all the attention and stuff? Oh yeah, you have to definitely lock up all the soccer moms when when our band comes to play. They they just you know, they just go crazy for us. Um, but yeah, you know, I was promised groupies. Uh, we have yet to that is yet to deliver. 
Uh, or you so, get guppies by mistake. Exactly. Groupers. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I uh, never, I played for an older crowd always and shit. So, I mean, I met a couple girls date when I played music, but yeah, I wasn't in a, I mean, there were not a lot of young girls my age, 20s, you know, going out listening to jazz, okay, and uh, stuff like that. So, uh, you think, yeah, I, I, I missed out on all of it. Yeah, looking back on it, do you think you wish you had played more rock gigs just for uh, the other aspects of being a musician, more of the fun aspect of it? or Yeah, because more- I never, I don't think I really, I can't, I mean, there was some polka jobs that were fun. Believe it or not, because we'd be out of out of town and spend the night and just go wild and shit. Um, but yeah, I never had like I w- I never looked at it for fun. It was it was a job for me. It was back then. I wanted to record. I I still there was a point in my life. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to hit it big, playing the drums. Uh, you know, musically. Um, I, you know, it never happened. You know, um, so and it, it, opportunities dried up for all of us okay it started with the djs well actually it's buddy rich the greatest in the 70s was like really bitching at the music union for to banning banning electronic drums okay the drum machines ban them don't allow them on any playing jobs he lost that fight by the way so it started there where drummers lost out out on gigs because now piano players or keyboardists could have the drum machine, right? That's where it started. That's where the demise of all of this live playing started all the way back then. And and then you had your um, DJs, you know, uh, that just pretty much wiped out a lot of live bands, karaoke, uh, you know, so it's been a gradual thing. And it sucks being a sideman, you know, if you're a guitarist, especially if you're a pianist or a keyboard, keyboardist, you can, you can get solo gigs, all right? Um, venues, restaurants, bars, sometimes just didn't have the space for a band and, but, or just didn't have the economics to hire a band. So, you know, it just dried up. I saw, and then when I had the aneurysm in 93, well, that was the, that did it, you know, that, that ended it. But it would have died out regardless. Um, you know, it, it got to the point, you know, I played funerals, believe it or not. Weddings, funerals, birthday parties. These aren't glamorous jobs, right? But as long as you're making the people that hired you happy, that that was some, um, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a joy in that regard. But it wasn't playing music that inspired me. It wasn't playing music that I would choose to play, those types of gigs. They just simply weren't. Um, so, yeah, I'm not alone in this. So many musicians that I met or knew weren't, you know, just weren't, weren't they were just doing it to keep their, keep, keep their, you know, keep at it a little bit, I guess. And But they weren't playing the, the, the tunes that they loved. I remember Jerry Sigler, that's the introduction music that you hear. Um, he was my big, I mean, I had two jazz accordionists teach me mainly. Ronnie and Jerry, of course, I study with others here and there. But Jerry was like, uh, what was the song? Um, I think it was uh, 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 Carlos Jobim. Carlos it was a, uh, he made a big, huge hit um, in the 60s. And again, with my memory, I can't remember. Super. 
girl from Ipanema or something. And then Jerry mentioned that that was like a great thing because that was a popular hit. Okay, I mean, like everybody listened to it. And he loved it because, I mean, it was an easy song to play, but it was jazz. And he could play jazz on the job, see? He could play at least one song where he could just go nuts and just jazz it up. But traditionally, he had to play straighter music. Not Mickey music, but just straighter, you know, tunes, you know, after the loving and whatever the popular songs were at the time, where you could throw in a couple of jazz licks, but you can't play jazz chords because to the untrained ear, it doesn't sound right. So, yeah, jazzers always had it hard, had it rough. And we discussed this on a couple of podcasts ago that, you know, going on the road is the way to do it. Just like with Street Fighter guys, you know, people try to teach you street fighting. They can't because it, they've never been in that environment. They're They're faking it. And just like a lot of jazz, people who study jazz or claim to be jazz players that really didn't pay their dues. They didn't go on the road. They didn't play in jazz bands. Um, so they're missing out on a lot of, of growth opportunities. And that same with me. I mean, I got to play with a few legends or great jazz musicians, but just for that particular gig. See what I mean? It wasn't like I went on the road with them. Okay. Um, and that would have only made me a far better musician if I could have been on the road with. I mean, I had one opportunity, but I was underage at the time, and I would never. It, it never happened, you know. Guy heard me, the musical director of, and I was at a music shop, and I was just doing a drum solo. Tell me you're eighteen. Tell me you're eighteen. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm like, I don't know what I was, sixteen or something. Um, you know, because they're strict. Yeah, yeah, union rules. I, I'm sure there's ways around it, but it wasn't with me. So yeah, you and I are like frustrated musicians, I guess you could say. I, I, you at least are continuing to play. I, I've lost the the ability in a lot, but more importantly, I've lost the the desire. And I, I think a lot of that's just because of my life in general. I mean, several years ago, I was dating one of those. I told you, I, I dated two women that that were sensational musicians. One was pretty famous. The other one, just a local woman, the local girl, local lady. We decided, yeah, I, all right, I'm going to get a set of drums again and try to get back at it. Um, by the way, I said I lost those drums when, when I lost the gym because um, we were thinking about putting a little t- group together. I said, I just need a few months to get back in shape for the, the music that we were going to play. She wasn't a jazz singer, um, but we ended up breaking up. Uncle Vinny died at that time you know everything was just like you know i blew out my arm you know i had to have my surgery this was like 2008 2000 and earlier 2008 i think is when i got those tubs but yeah that was short-lived <laughs> you know my comeback with the music we never even went beyond me buying the drums we broke up shortly thereafter well that's something i definitely think people who've never been in a band or um, can't appreciate how how difficult it is to hold a band together. I mean, we our group has been together for over a decade now. Um, but even so, even within that, you know, because right. I, I remember being on the outside of it, I was always surprised when I heard people they were quitting their band or their band was breaking up or not doing. It. I'm like, why would you not continue to like if you have this thing, you know, you have a band that can go play out why wouldn't you do it? Cause I mean, you're just part of this cool, fun thing, but you realize, but you don't realize, you know, Oh no, there's a lot of work to it. Like going out to play a gig. I mean, setting up, you know, <laughs> setting up a drum kit 
you know? So, Don't you tell know, me about it. Yeah, hauling your drum gears around. Like, I mean, you do that a few times and you're like, is this gig really worth it? You know, it's well, really- especially in the winter, especially $75 is what you're going to make, you know, and then you got to deal with the police coming home, you know, because you're driving at two, three, three o'clock in the morning. They know they see like in my case, I had that pickup truck. They saw the drums in the back. So they had, they're assuming I'm drinking, you know, um, it was, uh, you know, it was a uh, it was it sucked, you know, and yeah, the setting up, stripping them down. I lived on a third floor of an apartment, wheeling that shit in at all hours of the night. Um, yeah, it wasn't glamorous by any stretch of the imagination. Whereas, you know, a guitarist, it's no problem. I'm sorry for guitarists out there, but trust me, I play with enough of them that all they walked in with was an amp, sometimes not even that, and their guitar case. Two things and they're out. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, they didn't even have a microphone, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was... It, it, and, you know, being a drummer, at least in my case, okay, I can't speak for others, but for me, because I... I had a lot of ability and I was, I was always thwarted because I'm playing simple music and like a guitarist can, or any a keyboardist can throw in once in a while, they can just vent, do a nice little lick, throw in some substitute chords or whatever their thing is. And just, mm-hmm. you know, drummers, I mean, you're locked in, you know, I can't, I can't do shit. Um, but I was quite popular. I was young. A lot of times they'd give me drum solos just to get the, if there was a younger crowd in there to, um, because the biggest thing was every frigging where there's young people. I don't know why they picked this song, but when I was playing with like old timers, see, these were old people, front men. I was young. You'd always hear the wise guy. Free bird. <laughs> why that song? That they, they never ever said any other song. Free bird. They're mocking the guys. I get it. So they'd unleash me. The musicians, 90% of the time, would unleash me on a song. Down, you know, later that evening right whatever the tune would be would be some hokey thing but then they would just let me go and and have a drum solo where i could shut up the the rock you know the fans because i could you know i could cut so that was kind of fun so sometimes i would look forward to that i mean i hope there's a loud mouth at the bar or wherever we were playing so i could do a drum solo other than that though no you know but i could never play in a mickey band i never would would do for those that don't know what that is that's a society band okay where everything is lawrence welk okay would like be a classic example of mickey mickey mouse like straight i mean you can't do anything i would not even take a i wouldn't take a gig like that i wouldn't take a job like that i wouldn't do it okay um at all that would be something i i wouldn't do and that girl that i dated that i told you the local singer she saying although she she did other side gigs she sang for a local i don't want to mention who uh local mickey band okay they were pretty popular though i mean they made lots of money the the owner of the the leader of the band um orchestra um but they they started to get a little bit more modern so it they improved i mean they didn't you know they didn't play that old you know rigid society music I, i could never do that I, I I did play with members of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. That was one of the highlights of my non-jazz career. For those who don't know, Cleveland Symphony Orchestra is considered the best in the world. Um, so, and I mean, seriously, best in the world. And I got to play with, I didn't play with the Symphony Orchestra. I played with members of, of the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. Um, I played bass with a member of the Cleveland Philharmonic. Um, 
We played a lot of jobs together. Um, so I, you know, and I played with some jazz guys that were just, you know, fantastic um, legends, Grammy winners and shit. So I, I've, I've had a taste, okay, of, of what, you know, maybe I could have, what could have been, right? Um, but never happened, man. Just shit just never went down. So I know I don't mind. I mean, it's just the way it goes. There's other guys far better, like seriously stu- stu- studied musicians, Berkeley and the entire institute or wherever they studied, just and then never made it. Those are the guys I feel sorry for. I really do. Jerry Sigler, you know, who never made it big in the music business. All the world's all the talent that you know you could muster and you know, relegated to playing moose clubs and elks, you know, and shit like that. You know, that that was the path I was down. You know, who wants that? Now, I mean, some do, I guess. I didn't. Like, what's the path, like, or the opportunities for drummers to be studio musicians? Well, Chicago used to have that. Um, go to New York, go to L.A., okay? Um, go where the work is. <clears throat> Out here... <clears throat> You might get jingles, um, you know, commercials. You won't, you wouldn't be seen, you know, you'd be background. But, um, you know, L.A. had had a, well, New York had their major, the three, in my growing up days, the three giant areas were, well, four actually, but was New York and L.A. You can argue who was more, um, I think L.A. did a lot of the, Rock and roll, okay. You had the, the Wrecking Crew, Glenn Campbell, you know Hal Blaine, all those Tommy Tedesco, and on and on. And New York had their thing with their classical, or not classical, but ethnic, and you know, lot time time records and all of that shit. Then you had Detroit, okay, which had their version of the Wrecking Crew that were on a lot of the uh, Motown hits, and then you had Nashville, okay, and session players in Nashville. Right. So now I'm not saying there wasn't other locations, but those were the big ones. Chicago had like WGN used to have an orchestra. I I knew Lindy Kao was a sensational accordionist who passed away playing the accordion, actually. And then he was a trumpeter for the WGN. And, uh, you know, so that was before. I mean, I knew obviously I knew Lindy when I lived here, but that that was before my time, the WGN thing. Um, So, yeah. You'd have to go where, where the studio work is. I mean, especially if you want to make it like a full-time gig. You, you, you're not going to do it living in, you know, Park Ridge. You know, you, you, you've got to go to where the action is. It's not here. Hmm. Now, I never, I never wanted, first of all, I don't, I don't read drum charts. Okay. And so, so that would be a, I never wanted to be a studio sausage ever. That, that was like, I never wanted to be a pro wrestler. I wouldn't. I wouldn't play if I had to just play in the studio. I wouldn't want that. That to me, I mean, the pay was great from what I heard, um, but it just wasn't a life for me. That would be something I would choose not to do. I want to be in front of people. Okay, I needed people. I needed people, people, people. So studio, I admire those guys. They're amongst the best musicians in the world. It just, you know, wasn't for me. And again, not reading. Drum charts uh, disqualified me immediately, so it wasn't even an option. 
But living in Cleveland, nobody was a studio. I didn't know. I don't know of anybody who was a studio, ever did any studio work. I mean, may I, maybe I did and I don't remember, or maybe they did and they didn't tell me. But um, no. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, never really thought about just the fact that. And, and I think, obviously, studio musicians can play out. Um, I knew oh, a guy. Um, he actually had a gold record. He drank, he was a drummer, the studio drummer on some disco hit back in the 70s. Who? His name is Keith Anderson. He worked um, with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the only thing he maybe has. I'd have to find the song and things. Uh, but he, he just ended up working in IT with us. You know, like he was in a different IT department. So even though he was this accomplished drummer, um, he still had a nine to five gig, you know, like to make his living. And, and I don't know if he did that. Maybe he retired into IT. Like he might have, when he was younger, been full time into drumming. I, I don't know his whole story. Um, it'd be interesting to see if I can get him on the show. I don't know. I haven't talked to him in ages. I don't. Yeah, that'd be nice. Um, I, I wasn't. I was a hot shot, right? I wasn't a school drummer. In like rudiments, I mean, I could do them all. You know, I mean, not all. No, I take that back. I couldn't do them all, right? Because I didn't need to do them all. I wanted to emulate Buddy Rich and play like Buddy Rich. So my training, my practicing was all geared towards being a Buddy Rich clone kind of thing. Which wasn't bad because, you know, I excelled at certain things, independence to a degree, speed mainly. Um, so I, I had no problem playing other music of that venue. But let's say you, you wanted to be a, you, you're, you're putting a Jay Brubeck band together. And you, of course, his legendary drummer, Joe Morello, God bless America, but that guy, phenomenal. But, well, I'm not going to play like Joe Morello. I'm not going to play all those weird time signatures. And as tasteful as as, as uh, Morello or a Max Roach, uh, very tasty, tasteful, you know, unbelievable drummers. Or Ed Thickpen, who played with um, Oscar Peterson, who was considered at the time the, the greatest guy with the brushes. I, I could play brushes, but I didn't. I, there was no need for me to do it on any of the jobs I played. So this guy that you're talking about, the disco guy, he probably could do all of that. He's probably a very, you know run rings around me, you know, um, and that's why I'd love to have them on the show. Um, Cause I was one, you know, one, you know, I wanted to play, I wanted to be buddy rich. Okay. So that's just all my, but a guy like him probably was, you know, very well-rounded. He could probably play, probably reads like a bitch, you know, I'll bet you. So yeah, I'd love to have him on the show. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Like, I never talked to him too much in depth because I think he was kind of getting out of my work right as we were getting into music. But I do, I knew that he would, like, he would just jump, like, occasionally he had enough connections where, like, some cover band would be playing, like, I don't know, the Naperville Rib Fest. And I'd be like, oh, shit, we need a drummer. And they just call him up and they're like, this is what we're doing. Can you, and you just show up. He could just show up and whatever the songs were. You know, like he maybe he'd listen to him on the way over or something. And granted, rock songs, you know, it's four four. Yeah, that's not hard. Yeah. Yeah. So like he could, um, um, I mean, but yeah, and then and there's probably all kinds of stuff going on with a drummer in a band that I don't even understand because I know like a lot of times they are signaling you're signaling changes to the band too, right? Like, like the band, the drummer really hooks up with the bassist. Okay, those are the two that you know we got to be on the same page. We got to click. I've played a lot of jobs without a bass player. It's kind of hollow sounding, the, the group. But yeah, you know, we're all I, you know, because I used to, you know, play with different bands that I never even knew the guys until I showed up. 
All I wanted to know is, are there breaks in the song? Okay, does this particular song have a break where you have to stop? Or are there any time signal changes? Because remember, I'm playing songs I never heard of before. And many times they were songs that weren't even from this country. Okay, they were ethnic related, right? Um, so that's all I cared about. Are there breaks? Are there time signature changes? You know, um, that that's what I what, that's what I needed to know. Now, when it came to the pop tunes on the set, you know, uh, I had a lot of leeway. You know, um, so if I wanted to play with the stick on the rim, I could do that. You know, to give a different sound. If I wanted to play with the brushes, uh, how I played the cymbals, I had freedom uh, to do you know, whatever I wanted to do. And I'm sure this guy that you're talking about, uh, when he's sitting in at the Naperville Rib Fest, they're playing more standard music. Okay, so it would be an easier gig because it's songs that probably everybody knows and recognizes. Um, but I'm playing shit. I was playing stuff called like obetics. You know, I didn't even know what an obetic was, right? Um, I had to learn quick or when i'm playing with tambaritsans what is a tambaritsa you know it's croatian it's like a mandolin ish kind of thing and i've got to play stuff that man i, I never even heard this kind of music before you know i i have no idea what we're going what we're going with this all right so um or polish polkas as opposed to slovenian style polkas as opposed to italian polkas and a mazurka is another one how many people have played a mazurka how many people have heard of a mazurka Okay, so I've had to play all these things where where if you did the one-handed, you know, like ghost notes and shit, it isn't going to work. It's not going to sound right. So um, I may have the advantage over the, the disco guy, uh, you know, on ethnic music like that. But he'd have the advantage over me on like Latin music uh, um, or, you know, uh, anything that, you know, got to read. I'm sure he wasn't reading the Naperville. You know, I'm, I'm sure they oh, don't yeah. have charts. Yeah, he's just showing yeah. up. Um, but yeah, interesting. Uh, I know we're getting kind of close to wrap up time, but I okay. Just, I wanted to. This might not even be a short topic, but like, uh, it's interesting that you enjoyed playing in front of people. Like, how was that? How, did it did it cause you any any anxiety? Any of these scenarios? And did you how did you deal with that? You mean like stage fright? Yeah. Did you ever? Did, yeah. Like in general, was that was that not an issue for you? The only stage fright I ever remember was when they wanted me to sing for the first time. Right, I was nervous about singing in front of. I just was nervous about that. I had a lot of anxiety over singing. Um, now no problem. You know me. I've I've sang in karaoke's and you know I I, I got over that. But no, I never had any. Um, I knew my abilities. I was a pretty good drummer, so I knew that I could. I knew that with the exception of these jazz legends that I'm telling you about, I knew I was the best musician in the group. All right. Um, so I, I had no problem with that. I, I really didn't. Um, so no, I, I can't tell you that I did. I, I'd be lying if I told you I did. I just like to be around people because of my, of, of my upbringing and my childhood being isolated and being trapped and not being around people like that. Uh, I, I love to be out, and, and I always hoped, I mean, this sounds shallow, but I always hope that tonight's the night that I'm going to meet my girlfriend. You know, I'm going to meet the woman who's going to become my wife. Uh, I really did. I really believe it. It's just like when I talked about shooting pool. I would never shoot pool, rarely, rarely, rarely in pool halls. I wanted to shoot in bars because I wanted to meet girls. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what I, 
that's what it is. You know, um, even, even as an adult, now I haven't drank in a long time, but I don't, I never drank at the house. I'm going out to drink at bars again to meet women, to hope, hopefully meet girls, you know, um, no, I thrived on it, Joe. I, I loved people. I used to be a huge people person. And it, and it was great to go on when you're on break to go mingle with the people and just talk to the crowd and just, you know, be sociable and be personable. I met a lot of famous or not famous. I met a lot of interesting people just talking, um, you know, on break. And, you know, it was just nice. You know, um, I miss all that part. I miss the socializing, especially living out here nine years where I don't have any social life. Um, but not enough to drive me to want to play music, you know. Hmm. So any other plans this week? Um, no plans. Not really. I mean, I, I'd like to start lifting again. Uh, I just, I hadn't felt good all this week, so I, I'm not pushing it. Um, no, I'm going to try to take it easy until, uh, Next weekend, because we got the seminar, the workshop Saturday and Sunday, um, which will be good. Uh, and then um, I I got a little car issue that I'm going to try to take care of, hopefully tomorrow or something. Uh, no, I, I don't really. Man, I'll tell you something. My life is so, I want to keep everything real simple. And I don't like to make plans. Um, I just like to, you know, go nice and easy with things. Um no doctor's appointments this week, which is great. And then tomorrow's garbage day, Monday's garbage day. There's something to look forward to. <laughs> you know, <laughs> take all my old love letters. And, did I tell you about that when I was cleaning out the attic like several months ago? And I found love letters sent to me from, I don't even know who these people are. I have no recollection anymore in my memory. I don't remember who these girls are that sent me or women. I guess that's wrong to say girls anymore, but. Every every woman that I knew called themselves girls. Oh, me and the girls are getting together. We're having a girl girls' night out. Um, so I don't take the people who don't like that word. I don't I don't take the I don't I don't take it seriously because they use it. I I, yeah, I have love letters. I don't know who they are. Maybe I should burn those, you know, instead of throwing them out in the garbage. But no, that's my I'm sentimental about that. I'll I'll keep them. I'm sure I lost. I know I lost a lot of stuff because I had stuff in storage years ago and I lost the storage shed and, and, you know, they, they got rid of stuff. Um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I still look forward to meeting the next woman in my life, but I don't actively go out. I don't, I don't think it's actually going to happen. I think I mentioned this and I, but yeah, that, I don't go anywhere, so it's not, it's not going to happen. And and all and all the Amazon deliveries are by guys, so it isn't going to happen from Amazon. Um, so I don't I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe no, I got delivery someday. Yeah. So yeah, today I just want to thank everybody again for tuning in or listening in, and uh, um, we'll we'll have a special guest in a couple of weeks, and then maybe we'll get back on this special guest thing again. We've um, you've got to reach out to. To Bernie, Bernie, and you got to read. There was somebody else that I, I wanted you to reach out to. I don't remember right now. Um, huh? We'll figure it out. I'll get, give me, yeah, we will get her going. But anyway, everybody, thanks, and you know, get your last look at Joe here, um, because you won't be able to see him until another week, and it's hard for a lot of people, Joe. They believe me; they become attached to you in that regard. Well, the beautiful thing with this internet 
technology now that we have is they can go back and, and stream as many of these as they want. So I'm always there with for you now for, for eternity on the YouTube okay. channel. So. <laughs> That's good to know. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thank you.